We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. And when we say God glorified, what we mean is that we exist for the purpose of seeing God receive praise, worship, honor, glory, credit, and fame. We believe that he is due. And so we want to spend our lives, our words, everything pointing back to Jesus. Right? It's why when you come here, we say our one desire is that when you leave here, that you'll marvel at Jesus more. that we chose the name Emmaus, the vision of our church is that we want to be a people who declare who Jesus is from all of the scriptures, that we talk about him, we proclaim him here in this pulpit, we do it in our kids ministry, through our songs, through our confessions, through the scriptures that we read, we do it with our neighbors and with our co-workers and with our children at home, that we are a people who declare who Jesus is and that as Jesus is being declared. Hearts are burning with the truth of who he is and eyes are being opened to believe it and there's faith being planted in the hearts of men and women. We want to see this transformation take place in people all across our city. That's what we're about. That's what we will spend ourselves on as long as God sees fit to leave a church called Emmaus in existence. We're going to be in 1 Peter 2 verses 21 through 25. That's 1 Peter 2, verses 21 through 25. And again, 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds... You have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Good morning, Emmaus. Um, Hope you all had a wonderful Christmas and uh, looking forward to an exciting new year to celebrate. Uh, This morning when I walked in uh, to the office, I heard a loud thumping noise, and uh, when I came into our church office space, I saw the pulpit sitting on a table. And uh, Sean and Ruthie Cantrell whacking it with hammers as hard as they could. And, uh, so uh, that gave me a lot of confidence that I can really bring the word today. And this puppy is going to stand up. So, uh, so I'm excited. Um, Emmaus, it's a joy to be your pastor. Uh, if you're visiting with us today, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I hope you've already felt welcomed by our people. Um, I ask that you stick around afterwards, come out to our connect table, and let us get to know you a little better. We have a gift for you. Uh, While you're there, you might meet some of our members, because members, we have our CDs available. Um, So uh, some of you, most of you know, but uh, we have uh, released a CD in which uh, 
all the proceeds of this are going to adoption care. So adoption being at the heart of the gospel, our adoption in Christ is something that we take seriously, sanctity of life. And uh, so this is one way that we want to get our skin in the game. So the proceeds from those CDs that you buy, not only are you get great music, uh, I can affirm that. Pastor Sam, my wife, and many of our other members are all part of making this. Um, but uh, you'll also be blessing those uh, who are the least among us. So it would be uh, money worthwhile spent. One of my favorite pastimes on Sunday morning as we're worshiping together in song is to look out on the crowd. Uh, if you ever see me staring at you, I apologize. <laughs> but it reminds me of the weight of being your pastor. And as I look at your joyful faces, for many of you, experiencing great seasons of joy, for others, experiencing seasons of sorrow, and there are times where I'm tempted to be overwhelmed as someone who's inadequate to fully serve you. And yet I hear the lyrics that we sing, Emmaus, and the Savior that we worship. And that's why it's my joy this morning to open up the word before you. And here at Emmaus, we are committed to preaching Christ crucified throughout all the scriptures. We've been doing that through the book of John this year. We've concluded, and we find ourselves in the midst of a series known as the Incarnation, for the last three weeks, you've been hearing this and seeing elements of Christ coming, how he has brought revelation of God, uh, how he came in humility, how he will come again in glory. And this Sunday, as we conclude our series, we're going to look upon the incarnation as salvation. So as we prepare to do this, I'd love to pray, and then we'll jump straight into it. God, is our joy to worship you this morning. We thank you for the truths that we have sung, that our righteousness this morning is found holy in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for the weary souls that have walked into this room that we would cling to that truth in joy. Lord, I ask that as we open up your word and hear it proclaimed, that your spirit would incline our hearts to look to Christ holy and fully for our salvation, for life abundant, and for joy eternal. Lord, I pray that you would be with our efforts, Lord, to support adoption. Lord, we thank you that while we were far from you, Lord, Christ came and adopted us into the family of God. And Lord, I pray that our efforts in this would be pleasing to you, Lord, and that you would be glorified as we use the reality of adoption to both serve those in need and also point them to their Savior who loves them. Lord, be with us this morning. Give us ears to hear your word. In your name I pray, amen. So throughout human history, the incarnation and the crucifixion stand as pivotal moments in redemptive history. However, quite strangely, it seems that throughout time, there has been almost a disconnect between these two events. Especially, we find this to be true here in modern America, right? Right now, you could go out a couple weeks ago and drive throughout the streets and see images of people celebrating the Incarnation. Baby Jesus in a manger, in every place from the fronts of churches to storefronts. As you walk into even secular establishments and listen to public radio, 
you hear songs lauding and celebrating the birth of a Savior. And yet the disconnect occurs somewhere between Jesus in the manger and Jesus on the cross. An attitude change has happened. For the carnal mind, there is somewhat of a peaceful hope at the idea of a baby in a manger, but a detestable hatred of a Savior on a cross. See, we don't like the idea of our sins being so grotesque that it would take an infinite God to give up his life in payment for them. And yet, what we must see is that these two realities are integrally tied together. We cannot separate the incarnation and the crucifixion. We see this in Galatians 4, 4 through 5. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. In Mark 10, 45, it says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we see in our immutable God, unchanging, This plan of redemption has always existed, that the Son would come and lay down His life to purchase back and redeem fallen humanity. This wasn't a new idea that popped up 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago, but it's been in existence throughout all of time. So in Jesus' incarnation, it causes us to look immediately to the cross. These two things are tied together permanently. And today, what we're going to do is look at this reality. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25, we're going to see how Christ in his body, in his flesh, come to earth, has purchased your freedom. We want to do this by looking at three realities. We see that in the incarnation, Jesus has come and become our example, our propitiation, and our shepherd and overseer. So starting in verses 21 through 23, We want to look at Christ as our example. Read with me. It says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Before we jump into this too far, I do want to take a step back and look at the context of this book. Uh, We know we're popping into the middle of Peter, so we want to see where he's coming from in order to uh, frame this idea today. Uh, So we know this letter is written by the Apostle Peter, the same Peter who we've seen over and over again throughout the book of John, the same Peter who dove in the water to swim to Jesus uh, upon seeing him after his resurrection. So this Peter is writing um, by the Holy Spirit, is writing to churches throughout the area of Asia. And he's writing to a people who are currently find themselves under the oppression and suffering of those who are enemies of the gospel. And it's Peter's desire in writing to them that they would stand firm and hold fast till the end. So in order to do this, he's reminding them of the reality of the gospel. He's reminding them of this glorious plan of salvation that was conceived by the Father and is carried out by the power of the Holy Spirit through the blood of the Son, Jesus Christ. And he's encouraging them that they would press into Christ and hold firm in the midst of this suffering. 
so that they would lay hold to their eternal salvation promised throughout the foundations of the world. So in this moment, as he's seeking to encourage these believers in the midst of harsh suffering, he points to the perfect example of one who has endured harsh suffering, and that is our Savior, Jesus Christ. This idea of looking to Jesus as an example is not novel. In fact, I would say probably many people feel very comfortable pointing to Christ as an example. Even secular people look to Jesus and they see some of his teachings, they see the way he lived, and they hold him up as this example of what a good human being would look like. I think because of that, for myself, maybe many of us in the room, it gives us a little bit of a pause when we start to talk about Jesus as our example. We know certainly he's more than just an example. And to stop at Jesus as purely example is to rob him of who he truly is. However, I fear a little bit because of that, that oftentimes we shy away from looking at Christ as our example, gazing upon his life. And so I want to take a few minutes to do that. We know that Jesus came and lived on the earth for 30 plus years before he died. Throughout the scriptures, we find confirmation after confirmation that this was God's eternal plan. Everything down to the very moment of his death was planned from eternity past. We saw this in the book of John, right? Every time someone wants to arrest him and kill him, they says it can't be done because it was not his time. So we know it has to be the case that his life is far from inconsequential. There's a reason that Christ came and lived. But you see, what we see in the incarnation is that the very act of Christ coming in flesh itself is part of the redemptive process. You see, in Genesis 3, we find the first man, our forefather, Adam, introduces sin and death into the world. And as a result, all of his posterity are cursed with sin and death. We see this in Romans 5.12. It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all, because all have sinned. So as man and woman, as fallen creation, we are the descendants of Adam, and we have inherited Adam's curse. Our example is one of disobedience and rebellion against the Maker. Your great-great-great-grandfather taught you to do wrong. And his great-grandfather taught him to do wrong. And we are all complicit in this rebellion. Sin is not only around us, but is inside of us. And this is the plight we find ourselves in. This is the condition of man. Meant to be the image-bearers of God, the proper viceroys of God's creation, those who would reflect God's character and image to creation, have rebelled in sin. And yet we see in Jesus a breaking of this reality. See, Christ comes down in the flesh, and unlike man, he is holy, holy. That's W holy, not holy, holy. So he is fully holy. There is no sin within him. See, unlike Adam, who has left us a legacy of rebellion, Christ leaves us the legacy of righteousness. Within his body, we see that from a young age, he finds himself sinless. In Luke 2.40, we see as a child, he is found to be in favor with God. 
We see as a growing young man in Luke 2.52, he continues to be faithful and find himself in favor in God's sight. And as a man upon his baptism, as he goes into the water and comes out, the Spirit descends on him and the Father says, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. At every stage of Jesus' life, from his conception, birth, childhood, adult life, and death, Christ remains fully righteous in the Father's sight. And this is important for us to see. Jesus' life is one of obedience. Even his baptism is a pointed sign. He says, I'm doing this to fulfill all righteousness. See, Romans 5, 15 and 17 continues this. It says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So we see that Christ's righteousness in his body, reversing the curse upon man. Sin reigned in Adam, but it has no control over him. So we see in this this great mystery of the incarnation because with Jesus, unlike any of us in relation to sin, he is like us in one way. And that is he is very familiar with our suffering. We see this in 1 Peter 1, 2, 21 through 23. This is a staggering reality when we think about what we've just said. God himself, utterly holy, other than us. We are infinite. He is finite. He is holy. We are not. In so many ways, we cannot even begin to scratch the surface and identify with God in any way. And yet we see in the scandal and glory of the incarnation is that Christ has become like us in the most intimate and painful parts of our life. And that is in our suffering. Suffering is a thing that's common to the human experience. There are varying degrees of it, but all of us know the pain and the sting of sin and death. Whether it's through sickness or death, perhaps maybe consequences of our own sinful actions, maybe even just the product of living in a sinful world, we have all been touched by the sting of the curse of sin. And in this, we're tempted to look around and say, where was God when this happened? Where were you, God, when I felt you and when I felt this pain? And the glory of the incarnation is the answer to that question is, friend, he was near. See, in the incarnation, Jesus came down and took on flesh. And he suffered in every way imaginable. See, when Jesus condescended to the earth, he did not come with diplomatic immunity. I'm here as a representative of God, untouchable by the things of this world. But he suffered. He experienced sadness, pain, temptation, and sorrow. And the glorious truth of this gospel is that he took our plight so seriously 
that he joined us in it so that he might redeem us from it. So we find Christ to be our perfect example in both righteous living and suffering. Early church father Athanasius commenting on this says this, The Lord did not come to make a display, but he came to heal and teach suffering men. For one who wanted to make a display, the thing would have been just to appear and dazzle the beholders. But for him who came to heal and to teach the way was not merely to dwell here, but to put himself at the disposal of those who needed him, and to be manifested according to as they could bear it. So we see in his coming, Christ comes in such a way that he might identify with us, his suffering and hurting creation. The author of Hebrews says it this way in 2, 14 through 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to him in lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Friends, Christ has endured our suffering. Our suffering is not foreign to him. It is not as though he pats us on the back and says, hey, I wish I could relate, but I'm here for you. No. Christ intimately knows what it is to suffer, even greater than we could ever know. As he takes on the sins of his church and experiences the wrath of God, as he walks in flesh and experiences pain and suffering, Christ knows what it is to suffer. And so we see that he is our example when we suffer. For when Christ suffered, he did so righteously. Not as one with an axe to grind, but as one who submitted himself to the Father wholly and fully, knowing that it was for God's good pleasure and that these would lead to glory. So we find Christ as a sweet example, the ideal man by which we can look to, better than our forefather Adam, Adam who was unfaithful, Christ was wholly faithful. Adam who was unpure, Christ was always pure. Adam who was disobedient, Christ was always obedient. In his life and his suffering, he never strayed from this. But if Christ is only an example, that's terrifying news for all of us. See, the glory of the gospel is that Jesus did not come merely to lay the blueprint out in front of us and say, this is what a righteous life looks like. Follow me to the T and you'll be forgiven. No, he came to save. His righteous life was not an ideal to aspire to, but his righteous life made him the worthy sacrifice for our sin. We see this in 1 Peter 2.24. It says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. At the white hot center of the gospel message stands this idea of the atonement. Throughout the entirety of the scripture, we see 
God pointing to this reality that without death, sin cannot be properly paid for. We see this in Romans 6.23 when it says, For the wages of sin is death. In Hebrews 9.22 where it says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Littered throughout the scripture, as far back in time as we can go, we see that death and sin go hand in hand. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve have sinned, and their immediate reaction is to try to cover it up. They want to atone for themselves, so they go out and they grab fig leaves and cover up their shame. And we see God confronts them, and he takes the skin and fur of animals, and he places them as a proper covering. We see even here that there must be death in payment for sin. In the Exodus, as God is delivering his people from slavery in Egypt through his servant Moses, He's preparing to send his death angel over the city. And Jesus says, in order for your firstborn son to survive, you must sacrifice the lamb and place the blood of the lamb on the doorpost so that the death angel will pass over and the sin will be atoned for. The Old Testament is a constant reminder of blood flowing throughout the cities, animal after animal, dead, bleeding, blood flowing. And this image is to remind us, it should be a picture for us of the severity of sin. The curse of sin is not pretty. Sin in any form is deadly. And what we see painfully is the inability for these animal sacrifices to change and atone for sin fully. So when Christ comes, he doesn't offer the blood of goats, but he offers something far more precious, his own blood on the cross. We see Jesus, the only righteous one on the cross, shedding his blood as a payment for the sins of his church. At the cross, Jesus endures the wrath of God that was meant to be poured out on you for all eternity. Think about the reality of this. Wrath meant for eternity, poured out on one man for millions. See, oftentimes when we think of the cross, we get the picture of the physical pain Myself, someone who is a little bit scared of a needle, it's cringeworthy to think of Jesus' flesh being ripped from his body, thorns being pressed into his head, nails pierced in his hands and feet. And while that in and of itself is excruciating, there's something far more painful, and that is the wrath of God being poured out upon him. And yet Jesus takes that cup and he drinks it to the very bottom, so there's no wrath left for those who are in Christ. Not a drop of wrath left for the Christian. We see this is the beautiful reality of the cross. That this place we find the intersection of two great realities. We find a righteous God who does not tolerate sin. And we find a God who loves sinful humanity. How can these two things go together? Seemingly incompatible realities are found here at the intersection and this God-man, Jesus Christ, on the cross, as God shows that he is deadly serious about sin. 
For many in this room, that's hope for you today. As you look and see the hurt in the world, you see evil that has been done to you. You know that God does not take that lightly. It's not something he just brushes off and says, hey, you know what? It's all right. It's not a big deal. He took it so seriously that there's eternal wrath poured out for it. And this is terrible news for every single one of us because we're all sinners. Every single one of us is a descendant of Adam. We carry within our body sin and the desire to do sin. And so we're hopeless to save ourselves from it. And yet we see the glorious reality of the cross is this is where the sins of Christ's people go to die. Jesus takes the sins in his incarnate flesh and he carries them on the cross and there pays for them once and for all. It's glorious. Peter's using this language of Christ hanging on a tree intentionally because we think back to Deuteronomy 21, 23, where it says, cursed is a man who hangs on a tree. And this is exactly what Christ does. He takes the curse of sin in his body and pays for it there once and for all. And we see Christ has done this so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness with him. See, sometimes this is the mistake I hear. Even my own self confess that I've said this before. But I look at the cross and Christ paying for sin and look at it as almost as though a clean slate is given. This idea of Christ pays for your sin. He hands you a fresh start and says, all right, go for it. You're neutral to God now. No. That's not what happens, is it? We see this glorious exchange at the cross is you come to the cross with your sin, your filth, your disgusting actions, thoughts, and you hand those to Christ. And he places them upon himself and pays for them fully. And then in return, he doesn't hand you back an attaboy, go do what you can do and see if you can make it through and not do this again. He hands you his robes of righteousness. The righteous life that we just examined, that was fully obedient from birth to death, is handed to you. Christ, who is wholly pleasing to the Father, has placed that righteousness upon you. So when God sees you, he sees you not for the sin that once reigned in your body, but he sees the very righteousness of Christ. B.B. Warfield says this beautifully. He says, when we look at Jesus, we may not. We cannot afford to forget that we are looking at that which, by the grace of God, we may and shall become. The one perfect man, the one perfect model of life, stands before us in Christ Jesus, and the voice comes to us, not the voice of an angel only, but of God's own voice, a voice of power proclaiming, ye shall be like him. Ye shall be like him. So this is the glorious reality of the incarnation, is that Jesus on the cross has taken our sins, and he has given us his righteousness. Friends, this is confidence for you today. When you walk out of this door, you don't have to look at yourself for the sins that are upon you. I promise you, if you want to drive yourself to despair, spend all of your time looking at yourself. Your conclusions will be confirmed, and likely you'll find out that you actually weren't hard enough on yourself as you can be. You are sinful. You are deserving of punishment. This is absolutely true. 
But the glorious reality for those of us today who are in Christ is that that sin has been fully paid for. And today you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This is your identity now. Not a rebellious sinner like your father Adam, but a righteous, obedient son like our brother Jesus. When we examine the glories of this reality, we're tempted to think this is too good to be true. Then we continue reading in 1 Peter 2.25 and we find out not only is it too good to be true, but it's even better than we could have imagined. See, in 1 Peter 2.25, we see that not only has this act been accomplished, but it is eternally set in stone. We read and see it says, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We hear Peter is pointing to us, identifying us, as sheep, this is not meant to insult anyone in the room, but when we consider sheep, we think of uh, pretty much a helpless creature that's fairly dumb, and uh, I'll uh, assume that role upon myself. I won't make you guys take it. But. but when Peter's using this language as sheep that are straying, our minds automatically have to go back to John 10, right? We were just there as Jesus is teaching And he points to this reality that he himself is the good shepherd. And he unpacks these glorious truths that unlike all these other hired hands who have been leading God's people astray, who have been leaving God's people to be destroyed by wolves, and in fact many times were wolves themselves, Jesus is not like them. He's the good shepherd. And he lays his life down for his sheep. And we see that he knows exactly who his sheep are. When they hear his voice, they know him, and he knows them by name. There is not a single sheep of Jesus that will not be returned to the flock. And we see Jesus promises this and guarantees it because he says this work of redemption is from the Father. He says the Father has given me all these sheep, and he holds them in his hand right now. And the only way you can fall out of that is if you can fall out and wrestle your way out of God's hand. Or if there's a power greater who can snatch them out of God's hand. I'll save you guys trouble thinking about that for very long. There isn't one. You're secure in God's hand today. And so in this, we see a shepherd, an overseer. We see these two great and comforting realities. And that Jesus is like the shepherd who goes after his sheep. Something that separates Christianity from any other worldview or religion is that in all other systems, we have these rules and we say, hey, Do these things, work hard, and you can kind of bend God to to like you. You can manipulate him into thinking you're good. You can make him bless you. But the reality of the Christian faith is it says that you can't climb to the mountain to get to God, but God himself came down for you. He sought you out when you were lost and unable to be found. He came for you. In this term, overseer, we see this idea of authority. One who has charge over something. And this is Jesus' posture towards your soul. So Jesus has saved you, not to give you a chance at salvation, but he has saved you and holds you securely and firmly in his hand. And there is no one that can take you away. Not death, not persecution, not even sin itself can remove you from him. He has paid the price necessary and he will not let you go. He absolutely will not let you go. 
So friends, this is the confidence we have in our incarnate Savior. He has purchased us by His blood on the cross, fulfilling and paying in full the wrath of God. And there you come and exchange your sin for His righteousness. No longer are you seen as an enemy of God, but a friend and son and daughter. And even in a world that's sick with sin, we live to righteousness as we follow in the footsteps of our perfect Savior, the perfect man, Jesus Christ. And not even unjust suffering can push us away because we know we have this confidence that nothing can take us from His hand. And so we await His eternal redemption as we joyfully go forward. In light of this, I want us to consider pastoral charge to you, believers. My charge to you is this today. Gaze upon Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus today. He is that good. Go back through and listen to our sermons through the John series. Go back through and read through John. Everything you see in Jesus, his words, his deeds, he is that good. He is that good. And today, because of the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are united to him. You're united to him and nothing can take you away. So spend less time, Emmaus, looking at yourself and spend more time looking at Christ. And as you do, I can promise you it will change you. By the Holy Spirit, you'll be empowered to joyfully pursue holiness. And you'll joyfully pursue obedience because you're not trying to earn God's favor, but you know you already have it. It's already fully yours in Christ Jesus. So go forward with confidence in that. Are there any here today who find themselves outside of the people of God. I want to give you the same charge today, to look to Jesus. For many in this room, you've walked in, and the hope and dreams of your life are sitting on something so fragile, you can never hope to bear the weight of it. Perhaps it's a job. Maybe it's a relationship or a marriage. Maybe it's a family or children. Maybe it's your reputation. And this is where your hope is found. And you're hoping that it can hold up under life's trials. And one day you'll find that any of those things can be snatched away in a moment. And you're left with nothing. Perhaps even scarier than that reality was going your whole life leaning your hopes on something so fragile only to find out that in eternity it means nothing means nothing. Today I beg you, consider Jesus Christ. He who found himself rich, but made himself poor so that he might purchase your freedom. He entered into your suffering, felt the pain and the sorrow that is to be in a world conflicted and cursed by sin, and yet he remained perfect to the end. And he went to the cross to buy your freedom. So call out to him today. Sacrificial love of this is unmeasured. Look to Jesus today and cry out to him and he will save you. Let's pray. 
Jesus, we're overwhelmed by who you are. But I pray that as we consider you, Lord, that you would overwhelm our hearts with joy as we look upon Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that our our sin and our insufficiency, Lord, would melt away and we would be overwhelmed by the fact that this righteous, perfect God-man, Jesus Christ, Lord, that you've given us our freedom. And Lord, that your righteousness has been given to us. Lord, I pray that it would give us confidence to go out and be holy. Lord, that we wouldn't no longer try to earn your favor through our actions, Lord, but we would joyfully pursue you righteously because we know that we already are in Christ. Lord, I pray that as we start this new year, Lord, this church Emmaus, Lord, that we would be a people characterized by this reality, Lord, that the gospel would infiltrate our hearts so deeply that it would affect every aspect of our lives, Lord. It would change the way we look at ourselves. It would change the way we look at our job. It would change the way we look at even those that we dislike, Lord. It would cause us to see the world as you see it, Lord. Lord, we marvel at Jesus and we worship him. Lord, I pray that if there are any here today who don't know you, Lord, your spirit would move in power. Lord, I pray that they would see that you are that good. And Lord, they would cast down their idols and they would worship you alone. Lord, be with us. May your word change us in your name I pray, amen. Every week at Emmaus, we conclude the same way and I absolutely love this. We respond to this gospel that's been proclaimed. As believers, it's our joy as we consider this Jesus Christ who came in the flesh and offered up his body as a sacrifice for your sin. We come and we take this meal in remembrance of this. We break the bread in remembrance of this body that was broken. We drink the juice in remembrance of the blood that was poured out. And we proclaim this message to each other. And Emmaus, let this be a message that encourages you. And let this be a message that compels you forward. You're proclaiming the gospel right now as you come forward and take this meal. Continue to proclaim it as you go forward into the streets throughout this week. If you're a non-believer, we ask that you not take... Um, this is a meal meant for believers. It's a testimony to what God has done for us. So rather than come forward and fake your way through the motions, trust me, you're not going to be judged if you stay in your seat. We ask that you stay there and... Uh, And look at these men and women from all walks of life who are coming forward to profess their faith in Jesus and uh, consider Jesus as they come. Emmaus, I love you guys. It's a joy to do life with you. Come forward, let's take this meal. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com. 